You're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. February the 11th marked International Day of Women and Girls in Science and March the 8th is International Women's Day. So what better reason to celebrate some of the University of Manchester's own women of science here on the podcast? In fact, we found there's so much to talk about, we've split this special episode across two parts. In the second part, released later this month, we look at why girls are less likely than boys to pursue science as a career. But first, we talk to radio frequency engineer and astronomer Danielle George and physicist Andrea Murray about their work and research, their own journeys into science and the challenges they've faced. But before all that... Myself, Haley, Natalie and Joe thought it would be good to each pick our favourite female scientist... Not, not that we should have favourites because they're all very special and have achieved great things in their own way. But this is just for fun because it's a podcast. We thought we would pick our favourite female scientists and go head to head in a timed battle of the facts. So uh, we're going to take it in turns and we're going to talk about why a particular scientist is our absolute fave. So I'm going to kick things off by talking about Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who is an honorary graduate at the University of Manchester. Okay, so the timer is on. I'll just start off with this fun fact. There's been over 900 Nobel Prize winners, of which 866 are men and only 53 are women. And one woman who certainly did not win the Nobel Prize for her discovery is Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Uh, So back in 1967, she was a Cambridge University student working on a PhD and she was spending her time scouring reams and reams and reams of paper printed out from a chart recorder that was tracking the stars. So, I mean, miles and miles of paper uh, every evening, every day, every morning. It's not how I pictured university in the 60s, but there we go. Uh, While she was looking at this paper, she spotted a tiny, it could have just been a scuff on the paper. I would have assumed it was a scuff, but I'm not a scientist. Dame Jocelyn is. She decided to investigate. And she realised that this mark repeated. It wasn't just random. So it was nicknamed the Little Green Man. So this must have felt so huge, like you were discovering extraterrestrial life. But what she'd actually discovered were pulsars, which are a fundamental part of the universe. So when a star dies, it collapses in on itself and it forms this tiny, dense body known as a neutron star. And this rotates really super fast, sometimes so fast it's going at 100 times a second. And it also shoots out beams of electromagnetic radiation from its pulse poles and these can only be seen from the earth when they're pointing in its direction so they appear to pulse hence the name pulsar but dame jocelyn had to wait she couldn't just share the view straight away because people might think she was mad so she had to argue successfully that this wasn't just an accident it wasn't a problem with the printer it wasn't that they were picking up interferences here on earth but it was actually something coming from many many light years away and eventually, she proved the work, and it went on to. Time. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. And it went. She proved. She proved pulsars, and the work went on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1974. But Dame Jocelyn was only 24 when she made what? this discovery. She wasn't named on the award, and she received no official recognition for being the astronomer who'd made 
the discovery, which I think yeah, is an absolute <laughs> disgrace. But don't worry, because she's fine. And in 2018, she won the Breakthrough Prize in recognition of the discovery and of her leadership in science. And she gave away every single penny of it. So that's 2.3 million to wow. fund women, underrepresented ethnic minority and refugee students so that they could become physics researchers. Woo. So you tell me, you tell me a better female scientist <laughs> than Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. You can't wow. because she is a superstar. Wow. So I went over massively there, <laughs> but um, come on then, Natalie. Well, I'm going to try and stick to the two minute rule. Um, but I'm bringing you Dr. Mary Almond. So she was born in 1928 in Manchester. I'm pretty sure she's still alive, which would make her 92 years old. What a woman. She studied for a degree in physics at the University of Manchester between 1946 and 1949, where she was taught by Sir Bernard Lovell. Uh, this was after the war and the physics course at University of Manchester grew enormously due to all the ex-servicemen. So there were about three or four women on the course with over 100 men. At the end of her first year, um, Lovell asked if any of the boys wanted to go and work at Jodrell Bank during the summer. And Mary stuck her hand up and she said, if there's anything that girls could do there. Lovell allowed her to do it and she then went to work for two weeks during the summer, sandpapering rust off an old army light so they could detach an aerial to it. Living the dream. Living the dream, exactly. Uh, after her physics degree, she did a PhD in radio astronomy at Jodrell Bank between 1949 and 52. And at the time, she worked with uh, Patrick Blackett, who later won the Nobel Prize for Physics. She worked on paleomagnetism, which is the study of magnetic field in rocks and sediment. So um, her work was seen as so advanced and in such a new field that they actually struggled to find a suitable examiner to give her marks for her PhD. Um, so after the University of Manchester, she moved down to Imperial College London, but then had to give up uh, working in the university due to having a family. So, of course, she had to do that at the time. Boo. Boo, exactly. Um, but then she decided to take a hand because she's so cool, to computer science and maths, where she became one of the first female computer science lecturers in the UK at Imperial College London, back up to the University of Manchester here, and then finally at the Open University, where she retired age 80 in 2008. What a woman. 80. Wow. wow. 80. wow. And you've brought it in with six seconds to go. Well done. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. So, okay. Um, we've had Dame Jocelyn Bell now. We've had... Dr. Mary Almond. Yep. Joe, who are you bringing us this week? So I'm going to argue for Kathleen Drew Baker. Um, otherwise known as the Mother of the Sea, uh, she has this nickname in Japan, and the name comes from the fact that her research helped to save the entire sushi industry. Uh, so she was a, a lecturer in botany and a researcher at the University of Manchester. Um, Part of her research was into the cultivation of seaweed off the coast of Wales. Uh, this research was published in the journal Nature in 1949. Um, subsequently, the research was read by a botanist all the way over in Japan who applied the findings to the cultivation of edible seaweed over there. Um, what this led to, importantly, was a more predictable harvest of nori, now, nori is the what's used in uh, sushi to wrap it, uh, roll it, keep it all together. This is a little, the green square. It's the green square, exactly. Uh, so it's very important. Uh, 
previously the uh, cultivation of this was highly unpredictable so much so that Norway was given the nickname lucky grass or gambler's grass but thanks to Kathleen Drew Baker's research it could be cultivated far more predictably and the sushi industry was saved obviously today it's a billion pound business and we all love wow. it wow we're very thankful <laughs> for that um, but what I found also incredible about Kathleen Drew Baker she was from a very ordinary family in Lee near Manchester uh, she was known for her hard work and her dedication and even more remarkable is the fact that uh, she married a university academic um, and at the time the university didn't employ married women which sounds crazy today it's disgraceful yep. yeah but at the time was commonplace across universities uh, what this meant was that Drew Baker carried on her research unpaid for many years um, unfortunately Kathleen oh, 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 oh just 10 more seconds okay she, you can have 10 more seconds she she died before knowing the full impact of her research but uh, in Japan she's loved and a festival is held in her honour every single year so she has wow. an actual festival held an for her festival. that's so cool where they have lucky grass <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it'll probably like be a, a bit different here yeah. <laughs> lots of sushi yeah and toast their name so, and rightly so. So those are three pretty epic stories. Uh, I guess we'll leave it up to the listeners to decide who wins, but clearly, clearly it's... They're all winners. It's <laughs> clearly Dame Jocelyn Bell by now. <laughs> three legendary women of STEM for you there. And if you're wondering what STEM means, it stands for Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics. But why stop with three legends? I sat down with Professor of Radio Frequency Engineering, Danielle George, and kicked off our chat by asking if it was important to her to be an inspiration to women. Um, I hope I am an inspiration. That, that would be really, really nice if I was. Um, but I think it's important that it's not just for, for women. Um, and, and I'm sort of thinking more about um, sort of the next generation of female scientists. I think it's important that both... Um, men and women or, or boys and girls um, are much more used to having female scientists. And so it isn't just something that I think should inspire girls. It should also inspire boys as well so that they grow up knowing that this is just normal, right? Why would we be talking about women in science? Because that's just a normal thing. So I think it's really important that we do it for both. Can you tell me how you felt about science as a child? Oh, I've always loved it. Always. But I think... So I was a why child, like why this, why that, you know, driving parents, teachers mad. But I think pretty much every child does that. Um, and, and I think it's really important how we as adults, whether that's as parents or teachers or just influencers generally on children, respond to those whys. My, my parents didn't know the answers to all my whys, for sure. But what they did say was let's go out, let's find the answers together. So rather than just saying, oh my goodness, I don't know, you know, go away, Dan. Um, they sort of said, I don't know what the answer is to that, let's find out together. And so that sort of inquisitiveness always stayed with me. Um, and I've loved science from being small. And I went through what my mom calls science phases. So I really liked chemistry. And so they got me like a little chemistry set and, you know, I played with that and I love sort of making horrible smells with sulfur and stuff. And then I sort of came out of that phase and then went into like a microscope phase, you know, the looking at 
flies, dead flies, wings. Um, and, and that was really, really interesting. And I came out of that phase and then they bought me a telescope. And it was just a small little cheap telescope, nothing fancy. And that just stuck with me. I loved it. There was something about the astronomy side that just stuck with me. And, and thankfully, my, my parents and my two sisters, they used to get up with me during the night. If it was like a lunar eclipse or we could see one of the planets really clearly. Or, and they really sort of, um, sort of came on that journey with me. And that was the, the sort of science phase that really stuck with me. Which brings me seamlessly to my next question, which is uh, you were based at Joddle Bank for your degree. So that must have been an absolutely amazing experience. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. Yeah, so it was for my for my MSc. So I did an MSc in uh, radio astronomy. So I had done an undergrad in astrophysics and then I, I went to Jodrell to do my uh, Master of Science in radio astronomy. And, um, and I loved it. It was such a a cool, interesting place to be and, and very different from, from a city. So I studied in Liverpool um, as my undergrad and, and coming from a big city and, and I lived in Newcastle. So, you know, coming from another big city into somewhere like Jodrell Bank, which is surrounded by sheep and farmers, um, not people, uh, was a, a really interesting environment to work in as well. Um, and the people there were fabulous. And that's when I first sort of had this crossover between the science and the engineering side as well. So, so those two sort of passions of mine came together at Jodrell Bank. And, and for me, it really sort of shaped me as a scientist. What, what is the focus of, of your research? So largely it's, so there are 14 world engineering grand challenges. One of them is called engineering the tools for scientific discovery. And that's the one that I work on. And so I develop instrumentation for radio astronomy so for, for telescopes, radio, radio telescopes around the world, uh, both space-based and, and ground-based. So I design what's called the low noise amplifiers. So the signal that astronomers want to, um, want to observe are very weak astronomical signals. You have to amplify those signals, but you don't want to amplify anything else, sort of the atmosphere or any other noise that is in the atmosphere. And so, um, so we design low noise amplifiers just to try and amplify the weak astronomical signal. So in 2014, you became only the sixth woman in history to deliver the Royal Institution Christmas Lecture, well, eight months pregnant. Um, <laughs> and in 2018, you won the Michael Faraday Prize for science communication. What drew you to science communication? Um, God, that's a good question. I don't know, really. I mean, so as part of when I became a lecturer, um, I really loved the school's liaison side of things. So going into... Um, secondary schools and primary schools. I think it was sort of the questions that that children ask were amazing. I think the best ever question that I've been asked was by a, a primary school child. And I was talking about my work at Jodrell Bank and how we look back effectively 3.8 billion years to the remnants of the Big Bang. And there's this thing called the cosmic microwave background, which is sort of the, effectively the oldest light in the universe and how astronomers want to, um, to be able to observe this because it really sort of answers very fundamental um, questions for us in, in physics. And, and so I was talking about this cosmic microwave background and the, um, and the child, she said, um, what does a cosmic microwave background sound like? And I was like, I have no idea what a great question that is. Um, and it wasn't until whew, at least 10 years later that I was able to answer that question with a, a colleague of mine. Um, 
so I think it's sort of the buzz that you get from being able to to communicate your passion for your subject with other people. And if you can you can see that that passion transferring to other people, then um, then I think that's a, a really great thing. And I think for me, communicating science and communicating your own passion is not about dumbing down the subject. It's about making it accessible for everyone. And there's a real big difference. And do you think it's making it accessible that's one of the most important things in the role of science communication? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think it's, you know, we we have, from my point of view, we have these huge global challenges that many people around the world are working on. Um, If we don't inspire people to work on these challenges in the future, why are they going to want to work on them? So I think it's part of our job to make sure that we are communicating what what the great things are that we're working on, what the things um, are working on that, that have worked, but also the things that haven't worked, the things that we're failing on at the moment, and making sure that that, that next generation know that there are huge amounts of challenges to work on, but they're great challenges, and they are they need creative brains in order to solve these great challenges. What do you think are the main barriers um, preventing more women and girls in science um, to get into science or study STEM subjects? And what do you think we can do to overcome these challenges? Yeah, uh, so at primary school, there is no difference between girls and boys. Everyone is just interested in everything and it's brilliant. And everything is possible and the imagination um, of, of all the children is boundless. It's superb. Then we seem to get into secondary school and the pipeline for girls seems to get really leaky. And and I don't think there's one answer for that, because if there was, someone would have solved it by now. Um, I think there is a um, there's a whole bunch of different things going on with it. Part of the reason I think is STEM subjects. There is this misconception that STEM subjects are not creative. And so if, if you're very creative, if you like music, if you like art, um, then, then the sciences aren't for you, and that is so wrong. And that is the the myth that we need to sort of debug completely. Um, STEM subjects are so creative, and and we need to instill that in our own education system. I think our education system doesn't help us. So when we get to secondary school, uh, we have to choose between the arts and the sciences, and I think that is fundamentally wrong. And I think that is part of the reason that we we have this leaky pipeline with many girls because many girls go into um, the more creative subjects um, what they think are the more creative subjects sort of the arts if we just left it open and said look creativity is for everyone including the stem, stem subjects and we had m- much more sort of cross fertilization or interdisciplinary learning i think we would have more girls involved in stem subjects Which female scientist has been the greatest inspiration to you and your work? Um, I don't know that I've ever had one female scientist that's been an inspiration, actually. For for my work, I would say my mum has been probably my my greatest inspiration. And she's she's not a scientist at all. Um, She she was a a, she's retired now, but she was a, um, a teacher for special needs children. And it was her attitude towards my passion for the sciences that has kept me in the sciences I think Um, and this sort of 
willingness to to really explore things together. And I think one of the best things that that both my parents gave me was was confidence in my own ability and confidence in my failings as well. Um, and I think that that has really shaped me as a scientist. So I suppose a good degree about science is failing, isn't it? To try and work out those answers. So you need huge. to feel confident to fail. Yeah, huge amount. And I, and I think, again, this is what we need to instill in, in all people, but sort of my students at university, but also students sort of in primary, secondary um, education is failing is a massive part of being a scientist and engineer. You have to do it. And you have to get out of your comfort zone and you have to innovate. Um, and if you're in your comfort zone, you're probably not innovating. So get out of that comfort zone and fail. And that's, that can be a really tricky thing for, for people who are in an education system to believe because they've got to pass exams, right? And, and of course you can't fail. So, so I think it's, it's a really important part, I think, of science communication is talking about our failings and, and why that has made us better scientists. Hi there, I'm with Dr. Andrea Murray today of the Centre for Musculoskeletal Research and also the Photon Science Institute. Um, so... Could you just tell us a little bit about what first sparked your interest in science as a child and your journey into science? Yeah, so I'm a physicist um, and I think probably the first time I remember finding science incredible is when I started secondary school and we started doing physics lessons. Um, and I remember doing electric circuits and just thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I think I've always wanted to understand how the world works and um, and to understand why certain things work certain ways. And I think for me, physics offers me the opportunity to answer those questions. Um, and also it's exciting because you realise that once you've answered one question, there are thousands more that still need answering. So it's quite an exciting experience studying physics. So it sounds like you're wearing a few different hats here at the University of Manchester. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you do and your role here? So I'm a senior research fellow, and although I'm a physicist, I'm actually based over in the Faculty for Biology, um, Medicine and Health. And I um, work with uh, clinicians over at Salford Royal, and um, my cross-disciplinary research team are interested in researching a rare disease called systemic sclerosis and my role in that is to develop and apply non-invasive imaging techniques to study skin so by that I mean things that we can shine light on skin and learn how skin functions so how thick it is how much blood flows through it how much oxygen is in the blood vessels in the skin and we use that as a way to try and measure disease and understand how disease um, evolves and how we can treat it um, more efficiently. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your experiences being a female academic um, in the field of STEM. Have you experienced any barriers um, or any discrimination? So I think I've been very lucky in the way that I've come up through um, my physics degree, my PhD. I've always been very supported. Um, I've had some really good mentors that have very much, um, I think, given me advice about work-life balance and all that kind of thing. Um, 
so I personally have not had any problems in that sense. Occasionally and very rarely I've witnessed other people potentially having those issues. Um, but luckily I think it's been few and far between. So you um, do quite a bit of outreach work as well and you've um, worked on some networking events. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I try um, and do quite a few events for outreach during the year. Um, so I'm a big believer that science is for everyone. Um, and I think it's a bit frustrating that in 2020 we still need to flag women in STEM. Um, and I look forward to the day when that's not the case anymore. Um, and it's not just women, I think it's diversity in general in STEM. Um, so some of the events that I do are tailored towards helping um, girls and young women um, be inspired to come into physics, um, things like speed networking organised by the Ogden Trust. Um, some of them are to go into schools, high schools, and talk about my career and encourage students in general to come and do science and physics um, at A-level, at degree level. Um, but I also do um, things like the Community Festival, where um, parents and children will come along and you'll see hundreds and hundreds of people in a day um, and you get to talk to them about your research. I bring my thermal camera which measures skin temperature which is a measure of blood flow and um, kids always love playing with a thermal camera. We have a little microscope, um, a little portable microscope that you can see the blood vessels in the skin with um, and so they can see that. Um, and I go into schools as well, um, sort of primary schools and talk to younger children. Um, because I think if you can inspire children early on to see that science is fun and it's accessible um, and that it's something that you could pursue, um, then I think that's a good way to enthuse younger people to think about science as a career in the future. Um, you mentioned that the networking events are aimed at girls only. Why is this and do you think it's a benefit um, separating the girls for events like this? Um, so I guess that we know less girls go into physics um, than boys do. And um, I went to an all-girls school and it never occurred to me that physics was not for everybody. You know, it was never put to me. Although I was aware that less girls did physics than other sciences, it didn't ever occur to me that physics was not for women. And that's because obviously it's not true. Um, but I think potentially by um, having girls have the opportunity to meet other women who are in science, then maybe there's not that distraction of thinking about whether or not science is for girls. It's just that here are women, they do science, they do it for a career every day. Um, come and join us because we need lots of scientists across the whole spectrum of people to come and make um, you know, the science better and, and for the future. So we know that there's well, it's what's called a leaky pipeline of women in science research and industry. And it's been pinpointed to start at school around the age of um, 10 and 11. Why do you think this is? So I think potentially it even starts earlier. So I have two boys um, and my boys um, are 11 and 6. But my six-year-old, when he started in reception, so he was five, came home one day and told me that women couldn't be doctors, they could only be nurses. And I know this is cliched, you know, but it really was an eye-opener for me. And, um, and I said to him, but don't you understand? Mummy's a doctor. She's not a medical doctor, but she's a doctor. So that can't be true, you know? And that started a whole conversation, I think, really for us at home. Even though my children have been brought up, you know, with two parents who have science backgrounds. We do a lot of science things at the weekends, you know? Um, but obviously, 
that conversation had gone round the school and there was that thought that had gone on, it won't have been in the classroom, it will have been in the playground or somewhere similar. So, um, so you can almost see it coming into that sort of um, school environment at a very early age. And I have no idea where it comes from, um, but it's key, I think, to educate children early on that science is all-inclusive and we welcome everybody to come and do science with us, you know. That's really interesting. Um, how do you think the sciences can be made more appealing to girls? Um, it goes back to um, engagement activities as well, I think, and improving teaching potentially. So I think there is a concept that science can be boring, it can be difficult. Um, and I think you can show people relatively easily that actually know it's fun. You know, when I go into classrooms, even for children in Key Stage 1 and 2 with thermal cameras and microscopes, and, um, and they spend an afternoon imaging things around the room, you know, hands, faces, they look at all these, you know, temperature changes. Um, they find it really fun. They come away and they've told me, you know, that they've really enjoyed the afternoon, that they'd really like to do it again. Um, and I suppose part of it is trying to make people realise that science is accessible for everyone and that it applies to everything around us. You know, it impacts on our everyday lives in ways that you don't even think about. And if you can show the relevance of that, then potentially it becomes more exciting and more interesting for people and they might want to get on board and get involved. Would you say that you've noticed a bit of a culture change in relation to women in STEM in the last few years. So you mentioned that obviously outreach work still has to be done to encourage girls into STEM, but do you think there is more awareness of this gap? And are you seeing girls in schools becoming more interested in science subjects? Um, so I am much more aware. I think I've done um, engagement activities for a long time and actually more recently a lot of them focus on trying to encourage um, girls and young women into STEM um, and when I speak to them they do seem enthused by the idea. I still think there's maybe a long way to go, maybe when they think about science they think about going into medicine for example or um, other areas, whereas to try and encourage them to come into physics, to engineering I think we still have a, a way to go to show them um, that it can be a really enjoyable um, career and yet obviously we're examples of people who get up in the morning because we love what we do so much. Okay so to just bring it back to you again for a moment what most inspires you with your work? Um, so when I think back to my early career and when I even when I did my PhD so that was around laser physics and medical applications of laser physics I didn't ever expect I suppose to be working with patients so it's quite a different career path um, quite a serendipitous one that I've had and um, so the work that I do in developing and applying these imaging techniques in patients obviously is very patient-centred. So what we're trying to do is find ways to um, manage disease in better ways. Um, and I find that very fulfilling. So as a physicist, to be working in that clinical area doing research, um, it's very different. Every day is very different. Um, and I really enjoy it. I enjoy the patient interaction. I enjoy all the different facets of the work. I work in a cross-disciplinary team where there are people with physiology backgrounds, um, computing backgrounds, psychology backgrounds, you know, the clinicians, statisticians. And I think there's a real strength to that in that everybody comes from a different direction. Everybody brings a strength. And when you put a project together, people see the strengths and the flaws in different ways. And that makes projects very strong because you can put right flaws um, from different perspectives. And so I enjoy meeting patients. I enjoy the cross-disciplinary aspect of it and getting to meet very different people from different backgrounds and working with them. Um, 
and I just enjoy that every day is different. It's really good fun, and it isn't how I expected to spend my um, career in applying physics, but I'm really glad that I went down this pathway. If there was one female scientist out there who's really inspired you and who, if you had the opportunity, you could sit down and have a chat with, who would it be? Um, so I think, um, for me, it would be Jocelyn Belbanel, um because of the impacts on women in STEM, and I think that support that she's fed back um, throughout her career, and especially more recently, um, to support women doing PhDs, I think that's really quite incredible. And I would love to talk to her about um, about being a woman in science and how she feels the field has changed in the time that she's been doing science and I suppose how she hopes it will go in the future and I suppose how we all hope that in the future um, we will be accepted as equals, you know. Um, I think she's incredibly inspiring. That's all for this episode of The Buzz, but we'll be back soon with part two of our Women in Science special. For further information on what you've heard today, visit our website at manchester.ac.uk forward slash the buzz. We'll also find links to all our social media. If you have any questions about today's episode, our email is fsemarketing at manchester.ac.uk. You can follow the faculty on Instagram and Twitter at UOMSciEng. And we also have a Facebook and YouTube account. See you next time.